faith. This is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Jillian Lakuski. Jillian is a writer, photographer, and silversmith who lives near the banks of the Snake River just outside of Pocatello, Idaho. Her quiet confidence and deliberate approach to living have allowed Jillian to blaze her own trail, creating a rewarding career and an authentic life centered around the unique landscape of southeastern Idaho. When not working, Jillian and her husband Robert enjoy the western lifestyle from every imaginable angle. Bird hunting with their German short-haired pointers, big game hunting, fishing, running, horseback riding, mountain biking, caring for their farm animals, and cultivating their land. Big Western landscapes have always been an important part of Jillian's life. Her father worked for Canada's National Park Service, so she was raised with a deep appreciation for the outdoors and adventure. From an early age, she was riding horses, falling off horses, following her father into the backcountry, and building a personal foundation of self-sufficiency and toughness. As a young woman, she applied that ingrained tenacity to writing, photography, and creating jewelry, and has since built a loyal following of admirers and customers around the world. We had a fun conversation and managed to cover a wide range of interesting topics. I could have talked to Jillian for hours. We discussed her life path that eventually landed her in southeastern Idaho, and we chatted about the unique nature of that region of the world. We discussed her creative process, how she's been mostly self-taught in all of her art forms, and how she's been able to manage the distractions of social media and the online world. We chat about the importance of being uncomfortable and how self-imposed physical and mental challenges can help to inoculate oneself against the inevitable difficulties of life. Jillian's a voracious reader, so we had a great discussion about books, as well as how reading has contributed to her success as a writer. We cover a lot, so be sure to check out the episode notes for a full list of everything we discussed. This was a very fun and inspiring interview, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. The way that I normally start these interviews is I ask people, when you meet somebody for the first time, never met them before, and they ask you that question, what do you do? How do you answer that? When people ask me what I do, I usually tell them I'm a freelance photographer, a writer, and a metalsmith. That's very succinct and to the point, and it leads me to about a million questions, which we were just laughing about, these pages of questions I have for you. Um, and I was thinking about the best way to kind of dive in, and I think the the landscape where you live is so beautiful, and it seems to really um, influence everything you do. So I was wondering if we could start out a little bit just by talking about where you live, the landscape, how you ended up there. Yeah. Um, I live on the Snake River of Idaho. Um, I don't like to say exactly where, just for reasons of safety and privacy, but um, our farm, the end of our farm, actually the end of our farm driveway is the Snake River. So we're down in the canyon and it's high desert. It looks, um, it looks a lot like New Mexico in some ways. It's got that same really beautiful, glowy, light quality in the morning and in the evenings. And I mean, it's so central Idaho. So we get so many bluebird days throughout the year. It's very sunny and temperate too. It's considered, you know, the banana belt of Idaho. So our winters here aren't as harsh as they are in the rest of the state. It's a really, it's a very overlooked 
um, part of the state. People usually just blow, you know, blow through it on the interstate and don't stop to explore it at all. But the it's the canyon country, really, of Idaho, and it's it's very beautiful and very wild. I think in general, Idaho is overlooked. Like when you think about Western states, I think Idaho is the most underrated state there is. There's so much cool stuff to do there. And I think between, you know, Jackson Hole and then Montana has this aura about it. But um, Idaho is just just spectacular. How did you end up there? Oh, um, do you want me to start at the very beginning? Yeah, definitely. It's an it's an odyssey. That's what I like. Well, good. My husband and I eloped um, 14 years ago now, and um, I was in Canada going to school, and he was outside of Chicago going to college at Wheaton College, actually. Yep. And so once we both finished school for the year, we actually then told our families that we were married in <laughs> December, and we took off to Alaska to work for a rafting company. Um, and we stayed up there through the season. We thought about staying um, through the winter, but it work gets scarce up there. So we drove back down and we were in Northern California where Rob was timber cruising for a few months and we were getting my green card paperwork kind of started yep. at that point in time. So from there, he actually got a job as a fish biologist with the federal government um, in Arizona, actually working with endangered fishes that are native to the lower Colorado River system. Mm-hmm. So from there, we went down to Arizona and lived um, outside of Parker on the Colorado River Indian Tribe Reservation at a remote satellite station for U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And we did that for three and a half years. And, you know, Rob was so good at his job, he um, he could have worked anywhere on the lower Colorado with fish and wildlife doing anything that he wanted. But we both really struggled with that low desert climate. It just is so hot down there. Mm-hmm. Like, 130 in the summertime and just nine months of heat, which was really hard for me as a Canadian. So um, I told Rob, hey, like, what's the thing you've always wanted to do? If we're going to leave Arizona, let's go big and let's make a huge life transition. So from the moment that I met him, I met him in New Zealand, actually. Um, He had always talked about smoke jumping and he'd done a couple years um, on engine crews, actually, in Montana but had never hot shotted and really, really wanted to smoke jump. So um, I told him, well, go for it. So he started applying on USA jobs for fire positions, and he ended up getting hired by the Snake River Hotshots, which are based out of um, Pocatello, Idaho. And I told him to take the job, and we you know, sent a bunch of our stuff to the thrift shop and packed the rest of it in a U-Haul. And um, the first time I saw Idaho was when I crossed over the Utah-Idaho border in a U-Haul truck, actually. Wow. Yeah, and it was beautiful. I mean, it's spectacular. You come up um, through Salt Lake with the Wasatch on your right-hand side, and it's so beautiful and rugged. And and Pocatello actually gets a really bad rap, um, mostly from Boise people and Idaho (laughs) Falls people. They hate on Pocatello. (laughs) It's so funny to me. But it's actually a really well-kept secret in the state. It's, It's this narrow little valley with the Portneuf River going through it. And then it has an east bench and a west bench and um, a 9,000 foot peak at the end at the south end of the valley. It's beautiful with some of the best single track in the state, I think. And the mountains go up to, to you know, beautiful aspen and mixed dug fir and pondy pine forest. It's a really beautiful area. If you like immediate access to public lands and you don't like crowds, Pocatello is ridiculous. It's, it's amazing. And it's 
convenient enough to not be to not be inconvenient, which is what I always like to say about it. Yeah, I think that whole area is, is just beautiful. I used to live in Jackson Hole and I would drive through there a lot to to get to different, you know, work things I had to do and I was always struck by the landscape. It's just it's really, really unique. I, I it, I've been everywhere out west, but I can't really think of a, a place that has that same kind of landscape. And it's, it's striking and it's beautiful and it's you know, pretty rugged, you know, and uh, with yeah, the, the canyons. Pretty, I, I love it. Yeah, super rugged. It's like somebody took up a took a piece of paper and scrunched it into a ball and then just loosely like opened it up again. It's just filled that whole corner of the state's filled with incredible little micro ranges and just like beautiful wild country. It's just wonderful out there. So you've been all over. Um, you, you, I read in some of your, your great writing that I, I found online, you were talking about your upbringing in Canada and how you, uh, your father worked for the National Park Service up there. And so you guys spent time at, at a lot of different national parks. Could you just talk about that and, and your upbringing and kind of how that shaped your outlook and um, helped shape this life that you've created for yourself? Yeah. So my dad was, uh, you know, up in Canada, they call it a warden. If you work for the park service, you're a park warden down in the States. I think they use the word ranger. So he was a park warden in the national park system. And my parents, my mom was a nurse. So she had one of those portable occupations Mm because there's always a nursing shortage everywhere. So they went from Prince Albert National Park, which is in Saskatchewan, to Elk Island National Park, which is in Alberta, to Wood Buffalo National Park, which is where I was born, which is also in Alberta. And they were living at Fort Chippewa there. And then from there, our family went to Revelstoke, where my dad, which is Golden, BC, basically, uh, where my dad was working at Revelstoke and Banff. And then from there, we went to Manitoba to Riding Mountain National Park. So I saw a lot of the Western provinces as a, as a really little girl and, um, and was, and was living I mean, my best memories from my childhood are probably from Rydia Mountain National Park, which is just a really beautiful mixed boreal forest um, national park that's really overlooked, kind of in south central Manitoba. And I just I had a really wild childhood. Like, I just remember spending every single day, like from sunrise to sunset outside, you know, with the bears and the elk and the moose and, and my sisters and our horses. It was, I mean, it was a really beautiful childhood. Did just out of curiosity, because I have I have a little girl and I've got another little girl in the way, and so I'm always kind of thinking and somewhat worrying about how <laughs> how to raise them so they'll be tough and adventurous. And was did your parents put limits? Did they say, "Hey, no TV, we're not sitting around inside," or was it just kind of the thing you guys did was go outside and you didn't need any any rules or regulations to to make you do that? You know, I think we went outside just because we viewed the outdoors as an extension of our living space. But um, we did not. I mean, there was no computer. Like, computers didn't come into my life until I was in, like, grade seven, I think. Mm-hmm. But we didn't watch any, hardly any TV. We had a, we had a major cap on it. It was, like, a half hour of the Cosby show. Yeah. If good, like, during the week. And then on, the, on Sundays in Canada, there was evening programming. It was the Disney the Disney show where they would show like portions of Disney movies. Yeah. 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 They had that where I was growing up too. Yeah. Yeah. And then after that would come on the, um, the TV show road to Avonlea, which is an, like the, uh, an extended story of Anna Green Gables and, and you know, the writing of LM Montgomery basically. So we were allowed to watch that stuff, but we weren't kids that came home from school and sat in front of the TV. Like we, we didn't have a TV for a babysitter. We were really just, 
you know, we come home, get off the school bus, and then we're just immediately doing whatever we were going to do outside pretty much until it got dark. And then we came in, we ate dinner, we watched the Cosby show, and then we brushed our teeth and went to bed. And it was like that every day that we just, you know, I think my mom would have kept would have kept a closer watch on us. Um, if she wasn't working, but she was working at the time as a nurse. So she just was tired when she came home. And so we got kicked out of the house. And then my dad was really busy, like doing sting operations on, um, you know, poaching rings in that park. And, and, you know, he was so busy with work too, that I think we just went outside and, and did what we wanted because nobody told us to do otherwise. That's cool. Um, I read in a, a article that you had written about your, you and your father and kind of the relationship you guys had and how he, um, just, kind of set high standards and, and, and expected you to, to keep up. And there was a, a image in one of the, in one of your essays about you just riding a horse as a, as a young girl and your dad just never even really looked back. He just had the confidence that in you, that you could keep up and you did. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I'm not sure if he was confident in me or if he was being negligent as a father, but <laughs> He did expect me to keep up. And, you know, my dad is a really, he's a very complicated person. He had um, a really tough childhood. And and I think his definition of love and how to show it is really different than my current definition of love and how to show it. So, um, you know, I understand him better than most people do because he's my dad and I love him. But, um, yeah, I think he did, like, he did want me to be a tough and he did want me to do whatever I wanted to do and to feel like I could try whatever I wanted to try. And a lot of times he'd sit back with kind of like a smirk on his face. Cause he, you know, I just was this little tenacious little clinging little burr of a girl that just would hold on to the horse while it was galloping. You know, this one time I, I called my dad into the barn cause I had just started. Um, I was probably in like kindergarten. I had just started galloping or like loping and galloping on my horse and it was exhilarating and I wanted to show him that I could do it. So I like saddled my Palomino with an overturned drain bucket. And then I climbed in the saddle and I, and I took the horse out into the corral while my dad watched. And I was like, ready, dad, watch. And I started loping around the corral and I hadn't done the cinch on the saddle tight enough. And the saddle slowly started to spin. And then it went completely under the belly of my horse. And I, you know, I fell off and plopped onto the ground and, you know, I just, my dad didn't panic and run over and see if I was okay or like stop my nose for bleeding or anything like that. He just was kind of like, you didn't do your cinch tight enough. You have to do it tighter next time. And then he kind of patted me on the back and then went back into the barn to do whatever he was doing. And that was kind of the end of it. You know, I never got molly coddled. I just, when I fell down, I got told to get back up again. And even like when I'd go on patrols with him by horseback, you know, I fake being sick so I could go, go to work with him for the day mm-hmm. and miss the school bus. And even then, like if I got tossed off my horse on a really, you know, steep ride up a hill or something, you know, my dad just would laugh and brush me off and tell me to get back on. Like he just, he just treated me like I could do it. So I did. And I think that, I think that's something that's really missing in our society these days. We treat so many kids like they're, like they're breakable, but you know, they can, they need to deal with falling off and getting back on. And and I'm really thankful that he was kind of tough on me that way. Cause I think it's made, it's made me not quit things as an adult. Like I can hang on, I can, I can withstand anything for five, 10 more minutes, another week, another month. And like, I'm not gonna, I just don't give up easily. So I'm really glad that that he was kind of tough love with me. Yeah, I agree that I, I feel like that's missing. And 
I'm not an expert by any means in being a father, but I feel like if the the kind of the two things I would want my daughter to have is one be tough and two be compassionate towards other people. And, yeah. uh, I feel like, and I don't know, but it seems like the only way you can it, it really train the toughness is by kind of getting your ass kicked every now and then and, <laughs> you know, going out and falling off and falling down and, and, uh, learning from it. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you can learn those lessons any other way, really. Um, if you figure it out, let me know. Um, <laughs> So I, uh, I read that you, um, you dropped out of university, you you went to several different places and ended up dropping out. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and why that college college experience just wasn't for you? Yeah. You know, I liked a lot of things about school. Um, uh, you know, I liked my science classes and geology. I liked all of that kind of stuff, but I also knew I think from a really young age that I was generally unemployable by the real world. So, um, I ended up, you know, doing part of my fine arts degree and then eventually I just quit. And the reason for it was that while I was working on that degree, I was also metalsmithing full time. And at a certain point I realized that people were going to art school to learn how to be artists and to learn how to be successful artists and actually be working artists. And I was already doing all of that. So Mm -hmm. it seemed kind of pointless to me. And we also just reached a point within our family too, where we just needed me to work. So, you know, there just was a time when we just needed the money to be coming in from my job. So it just made sense to let, to let go of it. And I never felt like I needed to be a pedigreed human being. Like I'm, I'm kind of unapologetic and okay with being unpapered as, you know, as a university dropout, like, because the proof is in the pudding. Like I'm still, I'm doing something meaningful with my life that, um, that has a, that has a skill set that's still, that I'm still developing and, and honing. So I just, I just, it wasn't for me. And at a certain point too, it felt like I was jumping through a lot of hoops that, that didn't matter to me, you know, just playing the university game. So I think that so yeah. shows a level of maturity at, at a young age that is rare. I mean, I, I think most people just feel like, well, that's what, that's what somebody's telling me to do. And so that's what I need to do. But to be able to kind of look at it objectively and, you know, realize that, Hey, I don't really need that for what I'm going to do. You, you mentioned that you were, you, you thought you might be unemployable from a young age. Is that, <laughs> did you, did you always un, unemployable from a, a you know, a college wouldn't, need a wouldn't add any value did you always know you wanted to pursue the arts or how did that go I think I knew that I needed to do something where I was self-employed and Mm -hmm. my own boss you know I've I've held I've held down any kind of job you can think of really like I flipped burgers at Burger King when I was in high school um I was a librarian at elementary school when we were in Arizona I've done a lot of different things and I always reached a point within the work where I was bored Mm-hmm. And then, and then my, um, you know, my, my effort that I was putting into the job decreased and I became really a mediocre employee. So I just realized that if I wanted to be the very best version of myself, I needed to do something that required self-motivation. And I think I knew that like pretty much from the age of 20, probably. Got it. And so silversmithing, how did you initially get into that? Cause it's, you, you've, you've got such a talent for it. Um, and you, you've had a lot of success with that, but it, it seems like it would be the kind of thing that would just take so long to get, um, 
competent at. And so what, what led to your initial interest in that? Well, um, I loved jewelry from a very young age. I had a great aunt. Her name was Aunt Edie. Um, and she would always, anytime we visited her, she'd bring up a bag of costume jewelry from the basement at her place. And I remember sifting through that jewelry, which was gaudy and made of paste gems and, you know, it just was tacky, crazy jewelry. And I just remember thinking it was so beautiful and interesting. And that was really when I really fell in love with jewelry. And any of my oldest friends would tell you that I've always loved jewelry. It's what I've spent my money on. It's what I spent my money on in high school. And then in my 20s was, you know, I'd save up all my pennies for, you know, a silver ring with amethyst at the import shop. I just loved it. So, and I made it too. I, you know, I would... I identify as an introvert. And a lot of times before I even discovered boys, I would stay home all weekend long and just, you know, bead jewelry and read books in my bedroom <laughs> floor. That was like my idea of, a, of like a really awesome weekend. So when we were in um, Arizona and I was waiting for my green card to process, um, I noticed that a community college in Lake Havasu, actually 45 minutes north of where we were living, was offering silversmithing classes, which is really common in the Southwest to have a jewelry program at the colleges and at the um, community college level. So I signed up for it and I started to go into Havasu two nights a week to do it. And, you know, it was a really primitive workshop that I learned to first silversmith in and they didn't have a lot of modern technology. So they taught me how to saw and bezel set stones and solder uh, very, very poorly, but, and anybody can do those things. I mean, it's really easy. You can take a jewelry class and you can build a ring and it's not a, I mean, it's really not a big deal. It's not rocket science. It's pretty, it's pretty scientific and easy work if you just learn the methods. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but what I was good at was designing jewelry and translating, you know, aspects of my life into, into storytelling with metal. And so I started, you know, I've been at the bench for 12 years now, 11 and a half or 12 years. And I, the noisy plume has been in existence for 10 years. And so I've been at it for 10 years and my skills have really grown and my tool, my tool collection and my studio has grown, which increases my abilities as I, as I continue in this medium. But, um, that's how it all got started. And I love it. It's really, I mean, it's fun. It's a fun thing to sit down and work on and, and it's meaningful for a lot of people when they get my work. Um, whatever it is that I'm translating in metal, it, 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 uh, resonates with them. So, so did you have any, do you have any mentors, um, in the, in the jewelry making world or, or was, was this just kind of a thing that you, uh, slowly over time created your own look and created your own techniques for doing it. I, I know that you, you mentioned learning the, the, the basic techniques, but have you had any influences over the years? Yeah. Most of the techniques that I'm using now are self-taught. Like I've just fiddled around in the medium, um, enough that I've, you know, I've learned how to put my little touch on things or I've learned how to, you know, do a technique just because I wanted to build something a certain way. I have traveled to take some silversmithing classes, but I can, I find the, like the creative energy in workshops to be sometimes like overwhelming for me and almost so that I feel drained, like within an hour of being at them. So I don't tend to travel for workshops or anything like that anymore. And I don't really have many mentors. I really am truly self-taught. I don't, I don't specifically, I have friends who are metalsmiths, but I don't specifically find my creative community in the metalsmithing realm. Um, I tend to hang more with filmmakers and photographers and writers, but um, I just, I'm also really careful about what I let myself look at. I really want, 
I really want to know that my ideas are coming directly from my life experiences and from my values and from my interpretation of beauty. So I don't even really, I mean, I don't even really look at what jewelers are doing that much because I really want to guard um, my inspiration, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And I was actually just getting ready to ask you that exact question. So you read my mind. I was, I was wondering, um, because I've, I've heard of other artists that, that do that because they just want to be sure that everything is coming from their, their brain and that they're not, you know, accidentally absorbing some, somebody else's work. Um, that's really cool. I, that's, that's funny that you, you read my mind like that. Um, do you, you, I'm not looking to make like the most original jewelry in the world because I really feel that everything has been done, but I am looking to have my ideas be an original welling up, that they're actually coming up out of me, that I'm not just regurgitating the work of other people or re or, you know, you know, changing a design 10% and recreating the works of other people, which gets, I mean, it's, and I think that a lot of people start going down that path when they look at a lot of work. And I kind of feel sorry for like modern day artists. Like, you know, back in the day when you're an artist living in the middle of nowhere, just focused on like with your putting your head down and focusing on your craft. Like there were like, you couldn't turn on a phone at eight o'clock in the morning, look at a thousand different designs from your medium that other people were making and then go ahead with your work day. I think it's like, I think it's confusing for people's creative voice to, to have so much access visually to what other people are making. And I also believe in, in a, in a collective consciousness though. So I know that we're all on the same planet drawing inspiration from the same places, but, but I think for, for art to have meaning, it needs to, it needs to be you know, our creative voices need to be truthful and true to who we are as people. So I, I definitely believe in guarding inspiration to a certain degree. I think it's really good to, to, to just be mindful of how much you let your eyes take in on a daily basis. So speaking of that, you've got a, a very devoted social media following, um, and yet you're in this artistic world that requires concentration and requires solitude and, how do you how do you balance that? How do you balance this constant um, kind of stream of on the good side admirers, and then on on the bad side is it could be distractions from your work. How how do you manage to to keep the social me- use the social media as a tool versus be jerked around by it like most people are? Um, I just try to limit how much time I spend on my phone and on my computer. I I'm actually one of the rare people who doesn't always have my phone on my body. A lot of times I'm not sure where it is, which is delightful to Mm -hmm. be kind of less plugged in than the average human being. And I mean, I, I just, I just try to limit it. I mean, cause I'm aware, you know, I quit Facebook like seven years ago maybe. Mm -hmm. And I remember I just quit at cold Turkey too. It was very unpremeditated. I got on and I just was like enough of this. And I just closed down the account and then I never, (laughs) and for the first like, month and a half or two of not having Facebook, anytime I was doing something that was making me really happy, I would turn to my husband and I would say, Robert, if I was on Facebook, I would not have time to do this right now. I remember saying that for like two months. Anytime I just found myself like, you know, really enjoying a moment outside or reading a book or, you know, cook it, baking or cooking. And, and so I just, I've just tried to keep practicing that where, you know, I don't take it too seriously. And, and I do things at my own pace. You know, I've said that before that things, 
in my life take as long as they take. Like if it takes me a, a week to email back or a month, like that's just, that's nothing personal. It's just how long it took me. So people used to have to wait like two months to get letters from Europe because they came <laughs> over on a ship, like, and they were all okay. <laughs> and it meant even more to them when the letter arrived in their mailbox and they got to hear from great aunt Joni. Like, you know, it's just, everybody just needs to slow the heck down sometimes. So, <laughs> I, I completely agree. I 100% agree with you on that. Um, do you have a, a specific routine you follow during the day? I know from, from reading your blog that you put in a lot of hours at the bench, but you also are able to get out and enjoy the, the landscape around your home. So is there a, a certain pattern you follow every day or, or is it more just you, you kind of do different things every day? You know, I kind of, I sort of have a routine, but it's not, it's not hour by hour. And I think what helped me what helped me develop a routine was I tried to identify like five things that I must do absolutely every single day in order to feel like I am living the absolute highest quality of my life as possible. And they were something like, I want to read a, from a paper book mm -hmm. every day. I want to cook a minimum of two meals from scratch. Usually if I don't cook a third, it's because I skipped lunch because I just didn't feel like I could take the time to eat and I just had a quick snack instead. Um, and I wanted to do good work, either photography, writing, or you know, metalsmithing. I wanted to fit in some kind of one of those work in one of those three mediums or all three in the day and then um, have a some kind of a quality discussion with Robert before I go to sleep at the very end of the day. Did I, did I talk to my husband and have a meaningful, like connecting conversation? Great. So those were like the five aspects that I wanted to have in my life every single day if I could. And then anything on top of that was just kind of like the cherry on top, like bonus material. Yeah. But so, you know, I wake up in the morning and I have a lot of animals here. So usually if Rob's not home and it's during the fire season, you know, I make a cup of tea and I take it out with me while I feed the chickens, check the ducks, the turkeys and the horse and deal with the dogs and the cats and all of that stuff. And then most people begin their day with emailing, but that's just about my most not favorite thing to do. <laughs> so, you know, I usually go straight to work, whatever it's going to be for the day, um, and then if I make it to emails at the end of the day, then God bless me. But usually I don't. <laughs> and then, you know, I love to knock off at the end of the day. Metalsmithing is actually really hard on my body. I have some chronic like neck pain issues and chronic issues in a shoulder because it's very sedentary still work. So I love to end the day with with usually a run. I usually try to do, um, you know, a minimum of five miles if I'm running. And then um, if I'm walking, I just do whatever walking I'm going to do for the day or hiking. And then if I'm in McCall, I'm usually mountain biking. So, which is, we spend the fire parts of the fire. Well, Rob's in McCall the whole fire season because our airstream's up there and that's where he works out of. So if I'm up for the weekend, I do a lot of mountain biking and swimming while I'm in, in town. So, but that's what the days look like here. They're pretty chill. I work really hard, but that just made everything sound really tranquil, but it's not. Don't worry, everyone. I have my share of chaos. No, that's uh, to, to be able to do that every day. Um, I mean, that that's a full day and, and it's and it requires focus. And so, I no, I, I think that's um, I think that's very impressive. Can you talk about running a little bit? That's something we share in a, a common passion there for running. Um, how long have you how long have you been running and, and do you run for a goal or do you just enjoy the process and are able to enjoy, enjoy running for running versus having to have something to train for? Yeah. Um, I've been running since grade seven, actually. Um, 
and I was a track and fielder. I ran 800, 1500 and 3000 meter races and did a little bit of cross country too. But, um, I've just been, I just started running and I have a body type that kind of thrives on it. And it's just something that I have practiced no matter where we've lived. And I love it. I mean, it gives me, I know a lot of people talk about meditation and I think that's sometimes what running is for me because my mind really quiets when I'm out there and it was rhythmic Mm -hmm. and, and calming in that regard. And, you know, if there's something I need to think about, I'll go running. You know, if Rob and I are having a disagreement on something, he sends me out the door and tells me to go running. It's just very, (laughs) it's very like, it's very cleansing, clearing activity that gives me space to adjust my perspective. Um, and I also have German short hair pointers, so they need to, if it's not hunting season, they have to go outside a long ramble, at least once a day, sometimes twice. So, and, and the other thing I really love about running is just that, um, you know, I leave from the front door here because our farm is flanked on two sides with BLM land. So I, you know, part of it is just, is just doing a survey of the, of what I consider an extension of my property. I like to go out and I like to learn the habits of the mule deer and the pronghorn. I like to, you know, see how the beaver slide has, has deviated down on the riverbank. I like to, you know, yell at the porcupines for girdling the trees. I like to check on all of my wildlife and, you know, see what's going on out there. I feel like it's part of, you know, we live off the land here and I think it's part of my caretaking position is just to go out and to be in relationship with the land. And that's something that I can do on foot when I'm running. That's, that's, that's just a added part of my day. Yeah. I think there's, there's something really cool about running the same trail over and over and over. Um, and, and over the course of several years, you know, and over the, over the course of, you know, multiple seasons and you really, I found that you really get to know a place better than you, you ever could by getting out there. And I mean, even there's this little route that I used to do, um, you know, several times a week and it got to the point where I knew which routes I could step on and which ones I couldn't because they were <clears throat> certain ones were loose and certain ones weren't. And I knew where I could expect to see some mule deer hiding out. And, yeah. um, it's just, uh, it's really a, a unique thing that you cannot shortcut. You, you have to put in the time. And I think it's, I, I, I completely understand what you're talking about. That's, that's really cool. And it can be so stimulating too, because I never feel like I leave the front door and I cannot stop running no matter what. Like if I see something that I want to explore along the way, or if I find a cool skull or something and I want to look around the area for different interesting bones, like I stop and I do stuff sometimes when I'm running. I'm not like, I'm not a slave driver out there because the point is to be out there and to be exploring on foot, really. That's, that's how I view running these days. And I don't do races. I don't do any competition stuff. I really just do it for myself and and to be in connection at the end of the day with the earth and to get my body moving after being at the bench all day too. So I wish I could enjoy the process as much as you do with everything, because (laughs) I, uh, you know, I know that that's what I'm supposed to be doing and I know that that's the best way. And I have a full appreciation for enjoying the process, but I've found with me, especially with running or, or athletic stuff, if I don't have a goal, I just won't do it. And I know that it's the, the process is what's important. I know it makes me feel better. I know it makes me more productive and happy. And my wife does the same thing to me. If I'm in a bad mood, she says, you need to go running. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, if you, again, I, if you figure out how you did that, let me know. Cause <laughs> I, I need to know. Um, you mentioned your dogs. Um, and I'd love to talk a little bit about your hunt, your hunting and, 
how that has played a role in your life. Did you, did you grow up hunting at all or was that something you came into later in life? Oh no, it's one of the, it's like one of the great tragedies of my life is that my, I didn't learn to hunt from my dad who does hunt. I grew up eating a lot of moose meat actually. Um, and he did some gross hunting too when I was little, but, um, he, to my dad's credit, he did teach me to fish. Um, so thanks for that dad. But, um, I married a guy who's from Northern California, Rob's from Grass Valley. And when he was in high school, he decided he wanted to quail hunt. So he taught himself how to quail hunt. It took him like two years, I think, before he finally shot a bird and he didn't have a dog. He wasn't, he was just going on foot by himself, which is pretty difficult way to hunt birds. Um, and so when we got married, he, I really wanted a dog and he told me he'd always wanted a short hair cause he really wanted to do more bird hunting. So we ended up with our first short hair and we were living in Arizona at the time. And I remember really loving the training aspect to working with a bird dog. And I loved watching that partnership with my husband and the dog. And I would, you know, when Rob was going out to hunt in the evenings, um, we hunted tribal land that was right behind the satellite station that we were operating. Um, and I just would walk out into the land with him and watch. And I loved watching the dogs hunt. It's just, I mean, watching a bird dog in the field is one of life's great joys. They're just so good at what they do. They're so talented and gifted. And, and so after a few months of just helping Rob with training and, and hiking with him while he was hunting, I, I kind of decided that maybe I wanted to carry a gun while I went out there with him. So I started carrying a gun and then, and then, you know, I started actually trying to shoot birds and then I started hitting birds. And then, and then I got a taste of that, of that beauty that you can have, um, the beautiful partnership you can have with the bird dog too. And, and then, and then I, that's really when I fell in love with it. And then, you know, I wouldn't say I'm the world's best bird hunter by any means, but I do really, I do really enjoy it. And, and most of the enjoyment for me comes with the partnership with the bird dog. It's not, I mean, it's nice to feed ourselves at the end of the day, but I really love working with my dogs and and being with my family while I'm in the field too, with Rob and I and our pups is really special. So yeah, that I'm with you that watching a bird dog work is one of the coolest things you can you can see. And um I read a book a while back. You may have read it before. I think it was called Wolf in the Parlor and it's about the relationship between humans and dogs and how that you can't find a set of human bones in North America where there are not dog bones as well. And so some some anthropologists think that there was that there there've always been there's always been this partnership between dogs and humans and that that partnership is one of the things that allowed us to kind of separate ourselves from the neanderthals and and it's in our dna just like it's just like it's in a dog's dna to work with humans it's in our dna to work with dogs and that's why we have this just unbelievable bond with, with dogs it's a pretty pretty interesting book it's written by a scientist a, a, a science writer so it gets a little um little detailed at times, but you might like that. It's pretty cool. Oh, I just wrote down the name of it for myself because I'm a real keener that way, but it sounds great. Did you see that movie that just came out? It came out in December, I think. That's kind of parallels what you're talking about. I'm not sure. Is it called Atlas? It's about like some little like some little cave dwelling kid and his relationship with a wolf. It's, it's supposed to be like the story of man's first dog basically no i haven't but I'll, I'll i'll definitely look it up because that sounds really interesting i i never had dogs as a kid and i got one when i was um a senior in college and had it for 15 years and the bond that you form with those animals it 
it's definitely beyond just like a you know fondness that there's something in in dna in our in our dna that that makes that attraction just um like nothing else it's it's the craziest thing i couldn't believe it when that dog when i had to put her down man that was that was the most that was one of the most intense things i've ever had to deal with <laughs> the only time i've seen my husband cry is when one of our dogs dies it's just the worst i'm like oh no our dog has passed away and worse yet now my husband is going to cry <laughs> that happens it's just the worst the pit yeah it's rough holy cow dogs are amazing and then when you're getting to be partnered with a working dog that that's being used according to its instincts that's that takes it to the next level it's just a very special thing it really is um so when you when you post photos of hunting online um do you ever get any any blowback from that because yeah, obviously, I'm obviously I'm a huge proponent of hunting, and I think it, the the some of the world's most committed conservationists are hunters, and it's a it's a thing that we need to manage wildlife properly. But there is this contingent of people online that are anti hunter anti hunting. Do you ever run into that? And if so, do you have any any good um, ways of dealing with that? Yeah, I used to run into that a lot, but I've done a really great job of controlling the climate of my spaces. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, too, I'm not a celebrity. I'm not a celebrity hunter, and I don't ever want to be. Like you know, I post I, I post images about hunting, and I write about hunting because it's a part of my life. And my online spaces are about sharing aspects of my life that I find interesting or beautiful or lessons that I've learned through my lifestyle. That's what my space is about. I'm not branding myself and I'm not marketing myself a certain direction or in a certain way. This is just my, this is my life. If I share it, it's because it's important to me and I found it beautiful. And I think you might find it interesting, uplifting or beautiful. So, so I have run in, I have been smacked around a little on, um, in moments when I've chosen to share hunting imagery or when I've written about hunting and sometimes it's been violent. I've had people tell me to go shoot myself and not shoot deer, which I think is, um, horrifying. And I've had, I've had other things. I've had people who are really respectful say, you know, I, I have never appreciated hunting culture. I have never appreciated hunting, but I really appreciate the way you portray it and the way you talk about it and the way you obviously um, have a respect for wildlife and it's changing the way I view hunting. And I, and I'm so thankful that you're sharing what you're sharing about your life. So, I mean, I've had, I've had resistance from both ends of the spectrums and I, I mean, I'm totally okay with people disagreeing with my lifestyle, but, but I won't accept people coming into my space and actually, you know, violently vomiting their disgusting, hateful opinions on me for the way that I've chosen to live. Like that's just unacceptable to me. So I really work hard to, to, um, make my space, uh, a space that everyone can feel safe in and comfortable in. And whenever someone's violent like that, I just, I shut it down quick, but, but I don't, I mean, I also used to take it really personally when people would, you know, oppose our hunting lifestyle here and our subsistence lifestyle. And I don't take it as personal anymore. I used to be, um, to my great shame, I used to be very reactive about it. And, you know, I would put people in their place and, and I am sorry that I did that a few times, but I've learned a little bit of self-control since then. And I've also had my perspective shifted on it that when people are opposed to hunting, they're not, you know, they're not really opposed to hunting. I think a lot of times people are just terrified of suffering and they're terrified of death and they're 
and that's something that they're projecting onto me by being opposed to seeing a dead animal or a harvested animal. You know, it's their own fear of those things that it, that actually has them speaking out, and and it's their removal from a comprehension of life and death cycles and energy energy transfers and energy cyclings in our world that have been in place since the very beginning. You know, it's a removal from from all of that 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 has them lashing out at me and. And it doesn't help anybody at all for me to look to lash out in response. So, so speaking of hunting, I read an article that you wrote from a few years back that um, you were, it was called "And So I Hunt," and it was you were talking about the um, kind of why you go out and, and on these hard adventures and the benefits of going out and really kind of struggling and pushing yourself out of your comfort zone in the. Um, in the backcountry, and I'll put a link to that article because I just absolutely loved it. But could you could you just talk a little bit about that that mindset and that um, your your ability to to want to seek out discomfort and what that brings you? Yeah, you know, I um, I'm glad you're asking about that. I wrote that piece so long ago, and I wrote it from excerpts when my husband and I flew into the Frank Church um, for an elk hunt for me, and we ended up getting stranded on our airstrip for like three days longer than we were supposed to be and we were really hungry and the weather was bad and there was I mean anytime you're out hunting there's some kind of suffer fest going on which is one of the reasons I like hunting but sometimes I I wonder if suffering in life should kind of be approached as a practice so that we we can kind of begin to develop a little self-control when it comes to how we react to our suffering so that we're capable of kind of stepping outside of it and stepping away from it and observing it instead of, instead of getting dragged down by it and really giving our souls to it. And then, and then, you know, get, getting to a point where we have to medicate ourselves and we need to do all these things to try to, you know, bring back the spark and the light in our life. But, you know, we live in this society that is terrified of suffering. And like I said, a few minutes ago, terrified of death, you know, we work so hard to combat our aging and to, live as long as possible. And so many people want nothing to ever die or ever suffer ever. And that's not how it works. And we live in denial of it. And I think if you can put yourself in situations where you know that you're going to be uncomfortable, you know, you're going to be cold, you know, you're going to be hungry, you know, you're going to be, you know, carrying 90 pounds of meat on your back, eight miles off a mountain, bushwalking through really steep terrain, you know, it's going to hurt. And you can kind of prepare your mind for it a little bit. And have a little self-control while it's hap- while it's all happening. And if you can practice that, then when these unforeseen events and circumstances come our way, when when somebody we love, you know, passes away tragically way before they're meant to, it kind of instead of like getting sucked into the drama of that and the darkness of it, we can kind of, you know, think back to these times when we suffered in moments of our own choosing when we chose to suffer and you can kind of draw and remember that you were strong enough to deal with that then. And you can deal with this thing that's happening to you now. I think that you kind of have to, you have to like get your body and your soul ready for suffering a little bit. And the more that we remove ourselves from it in life, I think the less equipped we are to just deal with the crap and the darkness that comes our way. So I hunt, I go out and I suffer and I make myself suffer because I think it makes me stronger for those moments that are coming my way that I have no control over and hopefully I can survive them too. Yeah. I love that article. I thought it was so great. And and you, there was an Instagram post you did within the last few weeks where you, you kind of echoed that, that same thing about being at hunting camp and how everything is harder and you, you appreciate how tough it is. And 
I'm with you. I mean, I think suffering is just part of being alive and it's going to happen and you're going to, they're going to be happy times are going to be sad times and trying to avoid the sad times. You're, you're trying to avoid not being, you're trying to avoid being human. <laughs> well, exactly. And to avoid suffering is really what creates like monodimensionality in, in our personalities and in our societies. You know, if we are a stone, then suffering is the thing that cuts facets into the face of us and makes us beautiful. It's, it's our suffering that that we learn from and it's our suffering that grows us and develops us and matures us and gives us wisdom. Like we, you have to have it. Otherwise you're just, you're just going to be just a boring flat being that, that has no richness to your life and no stories to tell. I mean, that's the truth of it. Completely the truth. I, I, that's very well put. You should write, if you haven't already, you should write, write down exactly what you just said as an essay. (laughs) Um, Do you Go ahead. In argument of suffering. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any um, any stories or is there a particular adventure that comes to mind when you think about a time that where it was the definition of suffering, like a time it was extra cold or extra rainy or both, and that, that sticks out in your mind is – I guess you'd call it like type two fun where it was just, just terrible at the, t- at the time, but very rewarding when it's all over. You know, pretty much anytime we go hunting, there's suffering involved. I mean, if I want to think about suffering in my life, that's just on a day to day basis, like normal suffering. It's, you know, anytime we're out big game hunting or anytime, even if we go chucker hunting here, usually there's like 20 or 30 mile per hour winds. It's bitterly cold. You know, we've been walking through gumbo during the day and then the temperature plummets at night and we're holding on to the steel on our shotguns and we can't feel our hands and it's dark and we still have three miles to get to the truck and we're starving. And oh, also our hoses that go to our water hydration in our packs has frozen. So we're thirsty and can't drink. It's like this, like, you know, there's suffering and our dog, you know, but then you get home at the end of the day and you put a fire in the fireplace and you cook dinner or you warm up leftovers or whatever. And it's, you know, that moment when you're suddenly in the comfort of your home is made so much richer by the eight hours that came before it of discomfort. Like, you know, the, all the convenience and the beauty and the comfort of life has no meaning if you haven't seen the other, the other side of it. So so yeah, we hunt and we suffer here. That's the long and the short of it. <laughs> That's very cool. You're speaking my language there. I completely agree with all that. Um, so one more kind of longer question for you. You've you've created this really unique life for yourself, and it seems to be fulfilling and rewarding and challenging. And you've managed to kind of march to the beat of your own drummer for, it sounds like, you know, the majority of your life, you've had the confidence to kind of do your own thing and not just follow the the same path that everybody else follows. How do you have any advice to people who see your life and listen to this and say, I, you know, I would love to do something like that, but I, maybe I, I don't have the, the confidence or I don't have the experience. What, what advice would you give to people who would want to emulate what you've done? Um, You know, I get asked that question a lot, actually. And usually what I tell people is don't like time is relative and success is relative. And you need to figure out what it is that you like and what it is that you want. And then, you know, you start small and you and you build as you go and you allow your your life plan and your goals and your dreams to evolve and and you adapt in whatever new direction that you need to take basically. But, you know, there are a lot of different ways to be successful in life, but the two that always come to mind for me are, are that you can, 
become successful in your work by by networking with the right people and by knowing the right people and by sitting on coattails and riding to the top. And that's not really a sustainable way to do it. And it also is kind of a soulless way to do it. And the other way to do it is to kind of put your head down and to focus on your craft. And it takes you t- if it takes you 10 years as a woodworker to make the most aesthetically beautiful dining room table that suddenly sells like hotcakes, like then that's how long it takes. But on the way there, at least you learn to love your medium and to, and to really cherish the craft and to really, you know, become one with the medium that you're working in. You can't be impatient, but you also have to have a strong sense of direction and hard work always pays off. That is very, very wise words. Um, so I've got some quick questions that I've asked pretty much everybody I've had on the podcast. And I'd love to run those by you and uh and get your thoughts i know that you read a lot um do you have any favorite books related to the american west and any favorite books just in general yes i'm so excited about this question (laughs) good me too i told you yeah i told you on an instagram post recently that i've been reading ladies of the canyons yes which is great it's kind of a blend of history art the west and feminism. It's very interesting. It has, and it's just, um, yeah, you just got to read it. If you're not reading it, you got to read it. I've got it sitting right here. My mom gave it to me a few years ago and I haven't gotten to it, but, um, it's come up several times recently. And, uh, and so I need to, I definitely need to read it. I'm going to, I'm bumping it up on the list. Cool. And then another one that I have never heard anyone mention on your podcast is Two in the Far North by Margaret Murray. Have you heard, do you know the Murrays? No, I've never heard of that either. So the Murrays, they also have like their um, research cabins are in Teton National Park. Okay. But they, Two in the Far North is about when Margaret and her husband first got married and he was a caribou biologist. So it actually takes place in Alaska, but it has a lot of... Um, it has a lot of great storytelling with regards to, okay, let me start this again. So they get married, they move to Alaska and they basically live out of like a teepee with dog and they dog sled around and like shoot caribou and like skin them out and then send the samples back down to the lower 48 to like whatever, whoever her husband was working for at the time. And so somewhere along the way, she ends up popping out a baby and they just take this baby with them everywhere in Alaska. And it's just, it's like crazy where they take this, they take this baby up this remote river. I can't remember which river. Their mosquitoes are heinous. It's like, it's hot. It's super treacherous country in the middle of nowhere. And way back in the day when it's like, you couldn't call in a bush plane, like to pick you up in an emergency on a sat phone. They're like out there. And she just takes this newborn baby with them. You know, we learned, like this is another thing, another problem I have with society is that we just treat our kids like they're so fragile. But back in the day, people just took their babies places. Oh, yeah. And hip to do like the raise them outdoors stuff that, that you see lots of girls doing, which is so cool. Like on Instagram, you know, girls taking their babies fly fishing and all yep. that kind of stuff. It's awesome. I'm like, yeah. And Margaret Murray kind of did it. She sort of like paved the ultra extreme highway of that because that story, that story and what she does with that baby is awesome. It's crazy and it's totally inspiring. So that's a great book to read also. That's really cool. And I had not heard of that one. So, um, I'm glad I asked. Do you read mostly nonfiction or do you read any, um, do you read fiction? I like both. I love, I love a good quality memoir of like, like a Western memoir. Like one that comes to mind is claiming ground by Laura Bell. 
Have you have no, you read that one? It's set, the, it's set in the it's set in the Bighorn Basin of Wyoming. Oh, That's cool. a great one. I've read so many fabulous memoirs by women of the West, and then there's one that I read, and I wish, darn it, I wish I could remember the title and the name of the author, but it's about a guy that grows up on a ranch in Wyoming, and it's um you know kind of a run by run or play by play of of like his childhood, where you know ranch kids are like men when they're eight. Oh yeah. Right. So it's like all these stories from when he was a kid and he was cowboying and then it goes all the way up, you know, to the end of his mother's life, basically, and the telling of that story, too. But that was one, actually one of the most beautifully written memoirs that I've ever read about life in the West. And it was written by a man, which which was so surprising to me that I fell in love with it the way that I did, because I don't know, he just his writing was so intimate. If I remember the name of it, I'll email it to you because I just it's it's lost to me right now. Yeah, definitely. Do you think you'll ever write a book? Yeah, I think I will. That's I awesome. <laughs> you definitely should. Um, your writing is is amazing. Oh, how did you learn to write so well? Just doing it over and over and over. Because I, your your writing is uh, it is so is so clear and descriptive, and you you, it kind of almost reminds me of like Ernest Hemingway type writing. I love it. And I don't. Oh, how did you do that? I love Hemingway. Let me tell you that lots of ladies hate him because they think he was like a nasty pig to women. But I just think he was one of those dudes that just was so enchanted by like femininity. I just love Hemingway. I love I love it. And I love his art of omission. I think if you can elegantly, you know, draw out a, a exquisite picture for people with while using as few words as possible, then you're a fabulous storyteller. So I try to omit as much as possible in true Hemingway fashion. I love that man. But you know, I, I've read, I think you're, I think you become a good writer if you read a lot. Mm -hmm. And I try, I have to be careful because I get compared to some authors pretty frequently. Like, um, Oh, what's her name? Mary Oliver. People tell me a lot of times I, some of my poems sound like hers and I actually don't let myself read any of her work because of it. But <laughs> I've been reading, I just been reading my whole life. My mom taught me to read at a really young age. I was reading novels actually in grade one. And, um, I just spent so much of my time with books, like, and books were my friends too. And I just think I was growing up rurally in these national parks and it, you know, I couldn't just get my, my parents to drive me to a friend's house to play for the day. Like I really could play outside. I could ride horses. I could build forts with myself and then play with myself. Cause my, my older and my younger sister actually usually excluded me from their games. They were playing. This all sounds very tragic and pathetic. <laughs> I was an orphan within my own family, but I, but it really wasn't as bad as that sounds. But I just, you know, my books were my friends. And as a result, I really have a highly developed imagination because I've just read ver like voraciously my entire life. And I would go, I would pound through like five or six books in a weekend when I was in high school, just because that's what I would do is I would, you know, lay on the couch and read books all day on a Saturday. But I think the more you read, the better you write. And the more you read, the more active your invisible vocabulary is, mm -hmm. you know, the words you don't usually use in just rent in just common conversation. I think all those words are way more active, um, and as a result, you're just able to describe things better or you're able to give words to the things that you're seeing better. So read. I got it. I read. I read a lot. I love it. I do, too. I, I really love it. And it's it's funny, you know, talking about college and I would have all these assignments in college. And I, I'm not joking. I bet I, I honestly think I probably never finished a book that was assigned in college. Never. Oh. And, and now I'm just cranked through books like a crazy person. I can't stop reading. And, uh, 
very, very strange. That's something either I was off or the college was off or maybe both, but that's quite the contrast. <laughs> and if you ever find you have spare time, maybe you should start a book club for us. That's I was thinking about that and I was trying to think about how to how the, the logistics of it would work. But um I'm thinking about that. I may, I may, may reach out to to pick your brain on that because I think that'd be, a, I think that'd be a good idea. You sh- you could be the president, and I'll be the vice president of the book. <laughs> awesome. I'll let you do all the talking about the books because I'll sound <laughs> like an idiot. Um, <laughs> so we talked. About oh wait, books. wait. Go ahead. There was one. There was one other thing I wanted to mention yeah. that I thought you maybe hadn't heard of, and that was um, Kathleen Norris's two books, Dakota and the. The Cloister Walk. Have you heard of either of those? I have not. You're stumping me oh, with every single one of them. Oh, you're going to love it. It's such a beautiful writing. She and her husband lived in New York. They're both po- poets. And then her aunt passed away in is somewhere in the Dakotas in this small town. And so she moved back to the Dakotas to work and to live in this this little rural place. Next to, next to the town that she lives in there is a Benedictine monastery. So she becomes friends with the monks. But this whole... You know, both of those books are about life in a rural setting, the the role that faith, spirituality, and the church has to play in these little rundown country communities. And then also um, this idea of minimalism that's impressed upon her by these monks that she becomes friends with. And she ends up going into the Benedictine order or studying to be part of the Benedictine order. But it's just, it's beautifully written because she's a poet. She knows her way around words and... And it's just, um, it really resonated with me because I'm from the great Northern Plains. I'm from Saskatchewan. And um, then it's just, be- it's beautiful. It's such beautiful writing. That's awesome. That's, that's the last book mention I'm going to give you. Okay. Those are, those are perfect. Those are all great. And I, like, I, I hadn't read any of them, which is, I think that may be the first time that's, that's happened. So, and I like the book club idea. I got to think about that. Um, <laughs> do you have any favorite documentaries or films? No, I'm so bad at watching documentaries, but Rob and I have been watching lots of Planet Earth and things things about like wild African animals lately, mm-hmm. like about the zebra. But I know that everyone mentions Ben Masters' Mustang movie, and that, that one is one that I've seen twice, actually, and I really thoroughly enjoyed it. And I really appreciated the way the quandary of the Mustang was, um, you know, just really unbiased representation of both sides I felt, which I really appreciated because hardly anybody can do any kind of reporting these days in an unbiased way. So I just thought he did a great job with that documentary. Yeah. He's an impressive guy right now. He's um, traveling the length of the uh, Texas border and they're, they're making a new documentary about what would happen if they did go through with this border wall idea and try to put up a border wall on the entire Texas border. And, you know, half of it's like the grand Canyon. So they're obviously they're, the idea of a wall there is just silly, but you know, the impact on people, the impact on wildlife. And so it's going to be interesting to see how he puts that together. And if he can manage to pull it off in a, in an unbiased way that doesn't just infuriate half the country. I, I think if anybody can do it, he can. So yeah. um, pretty is, cool. he doing that, is he doing that on horseback? He did. So they did um, a, like a few couple hundred miles on mountain bikes, a couple hundred miles on horseback, and now they're on canoes going down the Rio Grande. And um, it looks really cool. And actually, Small World, a, a buddy of mine um, that I went to high school with is with him doing it and uh, one of the participants in the thing. So I think it's going to be a pretty cool adventure film that hits on some um, you know, timely, uh, political things, just like, just like unbranded did. So I, I'm, I'm excited to see how that works out for him. 
Oh, it sounds super interesting. He's he just. I hope I get to meet him someday. He seems really interesting. Yeah, he's cool. He's he's pretty funny too. <laughs> um, so we we've talked about all your your really cool activities: the running, hunting, silversmithing, reading, photography, writing. Are are there is there anything you do that is unexpected or possibly funny? I always say maybe I should talk to the the spouse on this one because I I could get some good. Good inside oh. info, but anything weird, funny? Sure. Robert could tell you about all the quirky things I get up to in the span of a day, but we <laughs> won't have. He went chucker hunting for the day. I kicked him out of the house <laughs> here to rat me out for all that stuff. I will. Um, a lot of people don't know that I'm a classically trained pianist, actually. Oh, wow. My mom, my mom had the role, she had just had a real heart for the arts, and she still does. And so, um, I did a ton of music training. I also played violin and trumpet when I was younger. I was in so many musicals and so many theater productions and so many choirs. So I am a musician. I don't have a piano in my life right now, but I need to get one again because I miss it. So yeah, that's, that's a good one. That's that's uh, that's the real deal. I took piano lessons for like six weeks, and my mom realized she was wasting her money, and so I, I that ended that. <laughs> too but my mom's definitely a tiger mom she made me keep at it that's cool that's, yeah that's great um what is the most powerful experience you've ever had in the outdoors i imagine this is hard given all your your experiences but it could be scary it could be funny it could just be memorable is there is there one experience that comes to mind that you just think yeah that was about as intense in a good or bad way as it gets yeah, I've had a lot of experiences. The one I decided that I wanted to tell you about is this one. Um, our farm is located pretty close to a massive wintering ground here along the Snake River. And I like to go out there when there's snow on the ground. I actually like to skajore it with Tater Tot, our younger short hair. Mm-hmm. And um, we were skiing out one day and I saw a massive elk herd in the distance. And just as I saw them, they start, they, they saw me and they started, you know, moving and I kept on skiing and they kept on moving. And soon I realized, you know, those animals will develop these little highways in the snow and the sage and they just, and they won't deviate off the path. So I realized that to get away from me, they were actually all moving towards me because they were taking their highway to leave the country. So I started skiing even faster and they started trotting and then they were all loping. And soon I was about, like 15 feet maybe from their main trail and probably 400 elk like loped past me as I squatted down in the snow and held on to Tater who was losing his mind. But it was just this slow, it was like, you know, when you get trapped behind a train as it's crossing the tracks and you have no choice but just to sit there and watch all the cars go by for like 30 minutes. It was kind of like that. I bet 400 animals ran past me while I just sat there 15 feet from them and I could see the white of their eyes and I could smell their musk. And I mean, things like that kind of happen to us all the time just because we're outside a lot, but that was a really, really beautiful, memorable elk moment for me, right? Really on my own, my own home territories. It was really beautiful. That's very cool. Um, they're, they're amazing animals and you know, you see them from a distance is one thing, but when you get up close to one, it's, uh, I keep talking about it brings out things in our DNA, but I think that there's some, there's some connection there. Um, it's really, really amazing. Um, do you, uh, do you have a favorite location in the West? I imagine that's hard as well, given all the cool places you've lived. Oh, well, you know, I, I love Idaho. This is where, 
you know, we just, we thought for a long time we were going to wind up in Montana and then we wound up coming to Idaho for, for Rob's job and just really fell in love with this state. And it's a combination of, um, just how much public land there is, but also a really low density of human population. It's just really empty and really undiscovered still. And we cherish that about it. We just, we really value personal space and, and, um, access to public land. And this is a state for that for sure. But, but, but I don't like to give away my, my secret spots in Idaho. So I'm not going to say more than that. And you can't even try to trick, you can't even like tickle it out of me. I have to keep that stuff a secret. So, but the whole state is, is amazing. And, and I'm lucky if you're lucky enough to live in Idaho, you're lucky enough. It's just a, it's just a beautiful, beautiful state. I agree with all that, and that's a wise move not telling anybody. That's the same thing Ben Masters did. He 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 refused to give me anything, so I think that's uh, that's good. <laughs> well, you've got to protect it a little bit. You see, I've mentioned a hike once that, and now it's you know it's just trampled and covered in human poop, and <laughs> it's a it's an age of innocence lost as soon as the Instagrammers find it. So you got to be careful with that. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that. Um, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, um, I don't know if I have an answer for that question. It's hard. I always it's, ask these questions, but I don't have any answers, so I shouldn't be asking them, but that's a tough one. What's the most, what's the best advice you've ever been given? Um, let me think. It's not really advice that anybody gave me, but some I heard the other day that I thought I've been thinking about a lot. There was um, it was some author that I was listening to an interview with, and he said he said um, mood mood you can't you can rarely change your mood through thought, but you can often change your mood through action. No, I think I get the gist of it. Yeah, like yeah. You can stew in your own juices, or you can get off your butt, kind of. Yeah, you just got to go. And there was another one I saw, uh, just a, a one liner. It said, "Mood follows action," and I thought that was pretty good. Um, That's pretty. Cool. Yeah, just you just got to go. You can't sit around thinking all day, um, which I'm, I have a tendency to do. Um, so, seeing everything you've seen in the West, you've lived in you know in Canada and different parts of the U.S. What do you think is the biggest challenge facing the the American West these days? Um. Oh, well, I mean, a lot of people say water. I sometimes wonder if our culture is kind of under attack in the West. I mean, I think there's a spirit. I think people who are in the West and who are of the West have a certain independence and, um, I don't, we don't want to call it like a rebellious nature, but we kind of do what we want out here. And sometimes I wonder if that's getting worn down and washed away and diluted a bit by big city values. Um, you know, people coming from, you know, big cities to, to smaller cities in the West or to towns and kind of expecting to have all the same, commodities and the same pace of life I wonder if that's kind of wearing down the western spirit a little bit I mean I don't know what do you think about that I agree with uh just from a practical standpoint I think the water is big um I, I agree with that and then I also agree with that with what you said and I think it's what we were talking about a little bit before we started recording that just the the speed of information and and yeah. you know the internet and all that kind of stuff it it uh, is erasing regional regionalism is that a word and yeah and so the the west is just like the the southeast where i grew up you know a lot of people there don't have southern accents anymore <laughs> and and uh i think it just 
it's kind of making everything the same if, if you're, if you're not careful. Does that make sense? You know, that totally makes sense. And to touch on it too, I just think of all the ghost towns you see cropping up in the West. Cause you no, know, cause kids don't want to stay on the ranches or kids don't want to stay on the farms or, you know, people want to go to the big city, this mass exodus of, of up and coming generations of kids. Like how do we, like, I don't know. I think that's, I think the West is under threat in that, in that way as well with just the, you know, family legacy leaving for other, for what they think are greener pastures, kind of like, how do we retain, how do we retain Western families and keep them doing the thing that, that they've always done, which is full of heritage and, and is really what our culture in the West is rooted in. That's something I think about sometimes too. Yeah. It's a huge challenge. When you look at ranchers, the, you know, the average rancher right now, I think their age is somewhere in the mid sixties and the people are moving out and there's just, there's not going to be people really to take over these properties um, as these baby boomers move on. And so it's, I don't know. I I think that's, I think that's very true. Um, So last question, and it's kind of a big one, but if you could make a request of the people listening to this podcast and it's people who love the American West in one way or the other through, whether through, ranching or conservation or art or athletics. Um, if you could offer some advice or ask them, uh, ask something of them, uh, what would that be? Oh, that's a hard question too. I don't know. I think one of the, well, the other threat, I think this is going back to the previous question. I think our public lands are definitely under threat in the West as well. And I think, um, we've got to have a, a refuge for our wildlife. We, and we also need a safe haven for ourselves. I think, our wild places are the things that um, are the places that save our souls really. And, and so if you don't live in the West, come see the West and come see, come see the land here and fall in love with it the way that we do and, and see for yourselves that it's worth cherishing and preserving and keeping safe and, and keeping healthy and whole and in balance and, and yeah, fall in love with it. Like we love it. Help us save it. I think that's a perfect way to end it. So how, how can people connect with you online? Oh, everything's the noisy plume basically. And I have impossible to spell last name for anyone who's not Polish. So, (laughs) um, so definitely just look up the noisy plume and my main mothership website will come up and I'm um, at the noisy plume on Instagram. And that's, that's pretty much it. Well, thank you very much. This was awesome. So great to chat with you. So good to chat with you too, Ed. Thank you. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, If you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. 
And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainimperial.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.